0: Uh, if you got a Bible, I hope you do. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 this morning. So we're going to read the first six verses and then we'll cover uh, most of that chapter. We'll look into chapter 6 in our, uh, in our time together this morning as we come to a conclusion of our victory series, our study um, in Joshua. There's a whole lot more of Joshua left. We'll get back to it in the future. But uh, today kind of uh, brings a close brings to a close this conversation about victory that we 've been having um, as we 've seen God work victory in the lives of his people and today uh, we 're going to see um, how he teaches them uh, how they can win the war uh, maybe not the war you think that they 're about to face uh, that we think that we face, uh, but the war that is most Uh, crucial in the battle that is most pressing. Joshua chapter five, verse number one. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel. Verse four, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who had come out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out had not been. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till till all the people who were men of war, who came out of Egypt, were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, the land that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey." Underline in verse number uh, 4, verse number 6, that phrase, men of war. We'll come back to that in a little while. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever walked into a situation for which you were completely unprepared? Unprepared. Now, this is men walking into most situations uh, with their wives, so if you've been there, you, you, you can relate. But uh, to, to everybody else in the room, um, more seriously, we'll have some fun up front, though. Uh, have you ever walked into a situation wherein you were completely... Unprepared, and maybe you felt like you were totally out of your element. Uh, you were out of your league. Maybe you felt exposed, as in you just felt like it was just obvious to everybody around you that you were just so inadequate, so unprepared, so you know so out the lunch uh, for this moment. Uh, you know, it's one thing to go into a scenario where it's well stated that you're unprepared. And everybody kind of figures it out as they go. But what makes these deal worse is when we go in, for whatever reason, our pride, our fear, overconfidence, um, we're not honest with ourselves, and we're not honest with other people, and and we pretend that we're going to be able to make it work. Isn't that the word? Isn't that kind of the, and in hindsight, now when we're in the moment, we think, well, I've got to pretend, I've got to put on a front because I can't let somebody know that I'm not prepared. I can't let somebody figure out that I'm just completely, you know, uh, you know, out uh, exposed and out of my league and out of my element. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like this, you know well how they end not very well, right? Uh, when, when you try to go about something which you just aren't cut out for, uh, for uh, for whatever reason, it's painful, and it's a demoralizing experience, really. Before we get too serious with this, um, how many of you can remember being in school and taking a, 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 taking a test on a subject that you were completely blank on? We've all been there, haven't we? Um, and, and, and maybe... It, Been a little while for some of you, but uh, you can remember, and maybe we've went through this with other kind of tests, other kind of things that we've had to face in this life um, since then. But how many of us we remember those days in school when the test was put in front of us, and we were just we knew going in, hey, this isn't going to work, and maybe we had this little hope that maybe maybe it won't be as you know based on the material I didn't look at as as I thought it would. But you get there, and that hour, the hour and a half is the worst time of your life. I mean, that time in your classroom when that test gets put on your desk for that next hour, that next hour and a half, it, when you've got questions and prompts concerning the subject matter that you're totally oblivious to... That is one of the worst experiences you can ever face. And, and now sometimes it's just a matter that, you know, we just didn't study that well or maybe you studied as much as you could, but just the math and the science didn't click. But in those circumstances, at least you have an excuse. You tried and you just couldn't figure it out. But the absolute worst nightmare experiences are the ones where you were assigned a book to read um, or several chapters to read or a a sheet to study, a material to study, and the tests are being passed out, and you're sitting there thinking, there's no way. There's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to fake this because I didn't read anything in advance, and we've all been there, haven't we? We didn't read the book. We didn't read the chapter. We didn't study the material, and we still go into that test day, and we look at that paper, and we hold on to some slight bit of hope, but when it gets in front of us, we feel like we are being punched in the gut a hundred times in a row, right? It's just, there's no way. Now, I I mean, you can wiggle through maybe a math test or a science test, but when the questions or the assignment begins based on what you have read, answer these questions or respond to these prompts, I mean, you can guarantee that you're going to feel the most nauseous you've ever felt while you're sitting there, right? I think everybody remembers those summer reading assignments that they used to give, and I say used to because I'm hoping that they quit giving these because it's insane to do this to children or to kids. But you know, I was, a little bit, still am, uh, pretty nerdy and uptight about getting my work done, but even I didn't get past the first chapters of those books. And I I remember one year, the summer assignment was uh, about a book about a kid with a terminal disease. I mean, what 14-year-old wants to read a book about someone with a terminal disease during their summer break? Nobody, right? And, and this 14-year-old was going back and forth from Duke Hospital with a leg injury that wasn't getting any better. So you can imagine how less inspired I was to read a book about a kid that was, uh, was in pretty bad shape. Now, I remember going into that test that first week of school, or whenever it was that first couple weeks of school, and everybody's in the lunchroom, and there's you know like 60 or so of us, and there's like five people that actually read the book, less than half of us, even know the name of the book, or even though the name of the character that the book's about, um, but nonetheless, we're all sitting there, pencil in hand, and we all make the attempt to take the test, because we were honor students, after all, so we've got to at least try, um, but everybody's looking around because, you know, you, nobody wants to be the first person to get up and turn the test in because you don't, be, you don't want it to be obvious that, hey, I got the first F in high school. Um, but remember, I remember sitting there thinking, um, at least I need to piddle around for 30 minutes uh, and just make it not look so bad, you know, so people think I did the work and think I— because I was more worried about what people thought about me than I was and the teachers and all that stuff. But then as soon as the first person gets up and turns theirs in— it's like the floodgates drop and everybody gets up and turn in their embarrassing attempts at reading comprehension. The only problem with that, though, you cannot comprehend what you have not read, right? Which makes a lot of sense. But the novel idea that you actually have to read the novel. Now, I felt so humiliated after getting those results back. I vowed to always read my assignments from that day forward. So even in classes where I wasn't even told to read the textbook, I kind of had a little bit of an extreme uh, habit that I developed. Uh, Science book, calculus book, I, I, I read the book because I just did not want to ever feel like that. Again, now I remember in college and in seminary, which, uh, it, which is pretty much you go to your lectures and 20% of your tests are going to be about the lectures and 80% are going to be about the content you are assigned to read that they never mention in class. Uh, and the thing I learned in college uh, that basically there's like two tests a year or, or, you know, a couple of papers or one paper, and you go to class day after day and you just listen to the professor talk, and sometimes he just talks, he just rambles about stuff that's not even going to be on the test and it's not going to be relevant to the papers you write. Meanwhile, every week, there are hundreds of pages assigned for you to read. And it's easy to say, I'll just read that next week. And about four weeks in, you've got 400 pages to read and a test the next week. And then it becomes very obvious that you're not going to get this stuff read. Now, thankfully, I I learned my lesson by the time I got to college and and grad school. Um, Some days in life are like this, though. You get this false sense of security that you can kind of brute force your way through the, the days, whether you're prepared or not. But then the tests come. Then the trials come whether academically or in real life. And if you go in blind, you will go straight for the ditch. And we've all been there, haven't we? And unlike in school, there's nobody to copy if you're in a pinch. Now, I'm not endorsing cheating, but it reminds me of the time um, I, I was taking a European history class in high school, and everybody um, knew that this guy next to me copied my test. Um, there were three people in the class that read the book, and uh, believe me, this guy was not one of them. Um, so this guy, uh, this happened to be a class. I love the material. I couldn't get enough of the book. I think I, I think I actually took the book home with me that summer, which is a really strange thing, I know. But um, uh, everybody knew this guy cheated off me, and they didn't like it, because because everybody was getting 50s and I was getting pretty good grades and this guy was getting decent grades because he would not copy it completely. He would at least make it look like it wasn't that obvious. But everybody knew that he was cheating off my my Scantron. So one day, the last test of the year, I decided to do the right thing. So I got two Scantrons and I filled out two. One was my test and one of them I filled out um, with about 50% of the questions, you know, obviously and, and intentionally wrong. So... I wrote Justin H. on one, and I wrote Mickey M. on the other, Um, so my friend and Mickey got the same grade. They got 45s, Um, but I didn't, thankfully, but he, hopefully, he learned his lesson, Um, and fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. So um, I shouldn't have done that to him, but he shouldn't have been cheating. So, you know, I I just thought I should do that. And everybody was happy after that. But now all of us probably have a story or two that's kind of actually comical in retrospect, but it most definitely wasn't at the time. Um, And I think all of us, maybe you have a story that you went into a test prepared but you prepared with the wrong source material. Has anybody ever done that? And this is kind of, you think, how can this happen? But sometimes I, I think people use this as an excuse, but you know, they read the wrong chapter or they studied the wrong list. But I think at least one time in all of our lives, there, this is actually the case. Uh, you know, always feel sorry for that person who put in the work to actually prepare for the test, but somehow went out of their way to actually study the wrong chapter or the wrong list of words or whatever it was. And, and, and I know most people think, how is that even possible? But teenagers' brains don't work at 100%, and, and while odd, it's definitely possible. Most of us have done it. Now, and if we're being honest, most of us still stumble down this path when it comes to real-life problems and challenges. There are so many situations that we find ourselves facing that we just aren't properly prepared to deal with. We just aren't properly prepared to navigate or to overcome. And instead of admitting, let's go to the next slide, instead of admitting that we weren't properly prepared, we began using tactics that were not fit for the challenge at hand. Now, in some cases, the tactics we choose and use are 180% opposite of what we should be using, which you can probably imagine just exacerbates the problem. Obviously, we face Uh, a lot of tests and trials in this life. We come up against a lot of obstacles and a lot of mountains. And the only thing worse than not knowing what to do when facing a test is knowingly facing the test in a way that's guaranteed not to work or solve or help anything. The thing is, with life it's not like school where you just get a bad grade and move on. In life, our decisions impact so much and so many people in any given season, so if we don't go into our battles with the right mindset, it's pretty much a lost cause. The war is already over. And you say, what war are you talking about? The war for our hearts, our minds, in our souls. Now, this may seem like a stretch for some, but this is absolutely true. There is an enemy who wants to rule us and ruin us. There is an enemy who wants to enslave our minds, our hearts, and souls every single day. Every single one of us face a battle of some kind. And that battle is not of flesh and blood. That battle takes place in our minds, our hearts, and it's for our souls. And there is an enemy who wants to rule over us and ruin every single one of us. There are forces in this world that have an agenda to block us from God's will, to still kill, and destroy the person that God wants us to be. And they never take a day off. Now, maybe you don't think this is true. Maybe you think this is fear-mongering or some kind of strategy people like me use to get your attention. But I say this with all sincerity, with love in my heart for the people of God. This is a test that we cannot underestimate, that we cannot afford to fail. We've been studying the book of Joshua, and this is kind of where it's all been headed. It's all about God's efforts to lead his people into the promised land. and, And the previous generation, they blew it. God was betting everything on the next generation to achieve and succeed where the previous didn't. And what we've learned across the first few chapters of Joshua is that God was taking a super hands-on approach with this generation, showing them that he could be trusted and he had their best interest in mind. But Joshua's generation fought against the same forces as their predecessors. And I'm not talking about the tribes or the opposing nations. I'm talking about the battlefield. Of The battlefield of our hearts, our minds, and our souls. The same is true for us, that there is a battle in every single day. Our minds, our hearts, our souls are on this battlefield. And, And for Joshua's generation, it was the same as it was for their predecessors. They were held back and would be, or would always be tempted to walk back God's promises and God's plans because of doubt and fear, anxiety, temptation, impatience, and anger. These same enemies, these same demons, these same forces torment us as they did them. You see, what we learned a few weeks ago was the thing that kept Moses' generation out was not the physical external barriers. It wasn't the giants that they saw. It was these giants and their hearts. It was these internal spiritual burdens. But with Joshua's generation, God tells Joshua, listen, the mission has a zero fail state. The difficulty has been turned down to easy. There are still plenty of ways you can mess this up if you don't trust me, though. But no matter what, I'm taking you into the land. My heart's desire is that you don't just get to live there, but that you can thrive there. So God uses the first chapters of Joshua not to prepare them for the battlefield of flesh and blood, but to prepare them for the battle of their minds, their hearts, and their souls because it was absolutely real for them and it absolutely is real for us. But we cannot, we cannot underestimate this lest we go into these battles and find ourselves in over our heads and there's no faking it. There's no wiggling one our way through. There's just defeat and there's bondage there's being bruised and banged up and discouraged, becoming a version of ourselves that we are not happy with. Now, I wanted to preface our time in Joshua five with this introduction because I think this framework will shed some light on the points and distinctions that God makes in this. Uh, God makes as He's comparing Moses' generation to Joshua's generation, the approach that He's leading Joshua's in. I told you to highlight in verse four and six in if not for this mention of this one line, we might not would get this from this chapter, but in Joshua chapter 5, verse 4, it says that the previous generation, the men were all men of war. But I think we read the story that God is trying to send a message about the kind of battle they were facing, the sort of warfare they would be waging, the kinds of weapons they were to use in contrast with the previous generation. Now, follow me for just a bit. I promise there's something amazing on the other side of this. Down in verse number 8, it says that they took time after the surgeries to heal. But I think there's double meaning here. The Hebrew word heal can also mean come to life. And I think there's a spiritual message here. Add to that, down in verse number 10, they begin celebrating the Passover. It says they camped at Gilgal and kept the Passover in the plains of Jericho, So here they are on the precipice of the Promised Land. They cross the Jordan River, and they all are ready to go and fight the battle against their enemies. But God says, before you do all that, there are some things that we need to do first. There are some spiritual things we need to do first, which essentially chapter 5 is a worship service. And I want to try to add all this up for us. This chapter, this pause in the action, is about preparing them for the real battle that they're about to face, the real battle that would always be present. This chapter is a worship service, and it really reminds us that worship services are always to be understood as preparation for the battles we face in this life. Now, remember, this text tells us these men were not trained for war like Moses' generation. Why would it tell us that? And then go on to talk about circumcision and Passover. Because this chapter is about preparing this generation for a different type of war. They didn't spend this chapter sharpening their swords, preparing spears securing chariots, training horses. They didn't spend this chapter doing drills about how they were going to conquer the land, which is what you would expect them to do, right? You would expect, oh, this is not a generation of warriors, so Joshua better get this group in shape because there's no way they're going to win the war if they're not prepared for the battles. But the real preparation in this chapter is spiritual, which tells us there's a different battle There's a different war coming into view. This chapter is meant to be kind of a center as the enemies across the valley see these people and they're not sharpening swords. They're not beating rocks. They're not getting chariots ready. The horses are not being primed for for, for running into battle. They're performing surgery on their men, which is the contrary to what you want to do before battle, and then they're worshiping. How is that preparing them for war? Why would they be doing this? And I think this causes the people to let their guards down. Because these people can't be taken serious. They're not actually warriors. You see, that's how our minds think. It would be easy to for Joshua to make the mistake of preparing his men for the wrong kind of war. But Joshua knew the real battle. The real battle, the unseen battle, the spiritual battle. Now, Now just a quick word on circumcision. It was a Jewish custom which was an outward sign of the covenant. But there's something that's normally done to babies to mark their initiation into the Jewish nation. This being done on adults was not ideal, to say the least. But it definitely made the intent behind much more real. And this is the message that God is trying to send to his people by causing this to be done. Before they moved forward to possess the land, they had to pause to first prioritize the Lord. Again, the battle that they see is not the battle that they face. The battle that they think they're about to fight is not the real battle at hand, which is so true for all of us. Before capitalizing on the spoils of conquest, they concentrate, concentrated on their devotion to the Lord, the possession of His Spirit. These men would be prepared for a different kind of war, for spiritual warfare. For the war that they faced in their hearts and their minds and their souls. Joshua's generation was prepared for a different kind of war that worship and devotion alone prepares us for and empowers us through. You, You see, every single day, every single day, we face battles for our soul, but we always do so by means of our flesh. And this is why we don't win. Isn't it true? What good did giving in to your emotions do? Rather than doing good, it actually did something bad, it actually caused harm. And isn't it true that when it starts in one place, it trickles down to the next place, a problem that you encounter at work goes home with you, and then it goes from one day to the next, and by the time you get to church on Sunday, you're not even in the mood to worship because that battle that you faced by means of your flesh ruined and soured your spirit. See, we often find ourselves looking for happiness, but the reason why we lost our joy is because we went into a battle un prepared. We went into a battle and we gave in to our emotions, we gave in to our flesh, and we fell into bondage. We didn't come out victorious. This is why we only come further into the bondage of this world. Joshua teaches his generation that we must prepare for a different kind of battle. We must change our target. We must identify our real enemy and learn to worship in its presence, as in defer the situation to God, and instead of reacting to the enemy the way our flesh wants us to, worship God in the presence of our enemies. Worship is the best offense and the best defense in every battle that we face. But isn't it true that as we face all the enemies around us in this world, we feel it rising up in us. We feel our flesh rising up, don't we? We think, I know how to handle this battle by giving in to anger, anxiety, bitterness, and fear. And every time we do this, what does it lead to? Not victory, not joy, not peace, but bondage and chains, frustration, and disappointment. Isn't it true? That we go into battle after battle after battle unprepared for the situation and we use tactics that are not right for the moment. And every time we face these battles for our souls, we use our flesh and every single time we give in to anger, anxiety, bitterness, fear, and all the more, we lose, don't we? Don't you want to win the war for your soul? Don't you want to win the war for your hearts and your minds? Or do you want to fight forever? We've got to learn how to worship God and the presence of the enemy and his forces, lest we become mere products of the enemy. And and I hate to say this, the enemy is not going to back down. He knows what sets you off. He knows what sends you off a cliff. He knows how to instigate your anger, your anxiety. He knows how to fill your heart with fear, with bitterness, with chaos. He knows and he's good at it. How many times are we gonna walk onto the battlefield unprepared for his tactics? And here's the thing that really kind of is unbecoming for Christians, and, and it's just really, there's no excuse for it if we really are honest about it. When we're tempted to fight battles with tactics that resemble those used by Satan, empowered by our sinful nature, what then sets us apart as God's people? How can that lead to victory? Come on, when we go to battle and we go into our flesh, we are fighting against the enemy with his very methods. We are allowing our sinful nature to dominate us. What then sets us apart as God's people? And how in the world can that lead us to victory? It's impossible, that's the answer. We could camp out on this point for the rest of time, couldn't we? So many excuses we feel enslaved to. But we don't have to be. Joshua knew they, can, they can't go into the first battle and do it the way everyone thought it should be done. What precedent would that set? It might get them in, but it would not lead them to true victory. Because this victory, the victory, wasn't merely about physical possessions, but it was about a spiritual possession. So Joshua made it, uh, made it a clear he established a strategy that would be inclined to implement every single day as we face battle after battle for our hearts and our minds and our souls whether it's conflict at home, at work within our own selves when we feel surrounded by temptation and opposition when we feel suffocated by everything that sets off our fears, insecurities anger and weaknesses we have got to remember this one thing if we want to win the war, we've got to learn to worship the Lord. If we want to win the war, if we have an ambition to win the war, if we want to see victory, our first and only strategy must be worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this to Christians. For the weapons of our warfare are, what's the blue say? Not of the flesh so as christians we are not going to win the battles we face every single day by tapping into our flesh it's easy it's quick it's more natural but it never works the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but They have divine power to destroy strongholds, as in the enemy's grip on your situation. But notice what he says next. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You know what he's talking about there? The arguments that our own flesh offers. The the opinions our own flesh has. You see that? Our flesh says, well, I know how to fix this. I know what I should do. I know what I'm going to do. I know the only option. And Paul says, we can take every fault captive to obey Christ. Christ is our victor. Christ is our Savior. He is God's way to win these battles. And that's exactly what we see Joshua leading the people in. Now, y'all know how this story goes, but look at chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands. It's king and it's mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. They were not men of war, but they were of a different kind of warfare at this point. You shall go around the city once This you shall do six days. And seven priests, anybody in the ancient world would agree, in the modern world, you don't send priests on the front line because they're not trained to fight battles like you need fall on the battlefield. But seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the trumpet sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout then the wall of the city shall fall down flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Now I know we've heard this since we were children and it just sounds like obviously it's biblical it's it's what you would expect the Bible to say but can you imagine how comical this must have sounded to them? If not all of them some of them but Joshua stuck to his guns, or really, stuck to his trumpets. His generation understood the true battlefield that God's people faced every single day, in every single day. His would be a generation that approached these battles with the right strategy, with the right warfare, with the right kinds of weapons. Another thing that helps us bring all this together, most would think, don't you worship after you win? Isn't that what we think? You blow the trumpet, after you win. But that's how this world trains is a thing. Moving our goalposts, we sing because we've already decided whether we make it through those walls or not, whether we get over that mountain or not, whether we get across that sea or not, whether we win the argument or not, whether we get our way or not, come on, all across the board, whether we get everything... Is right as we think it should be, guess what? Whether we get there, whether we get that, whether we change that, we have our eyes set on a different goal. Come on, this, this will change the way you face arguments at home, tension at work, problems in this country. Change the way you face the battles in your own heart, your own mind. The strategy must change. See, Joshua's generation went into this battle with this, with this mentality. I've still got God, God's still got me, and that's how you spell victory. You see, they weren't worried about how things were going to work out. They knew God was already with them and that God was going to give them victory. They didn't know how this was going was gonna to go. They didn't know exactly if things were going to go down as God said they would, but they trusted him. You see, we go into battle every single time. And if God says to us, worship instead of argue, worship instead of strike back, worship instead of getting your flesh, we think, well, that's not going to work. That's not going to fix the problem. But God says, listen, that's not the problem. The problem is what's going on in your heart. That's what's at stake. That's what's at risk. That's what's most important. So why do you worship? Why do you rejoice? Why do you take heart? Because I've still got God and God's still got me. And that guarantees victory. Listen, think what you want about Joshua's generation. They had a lot to lose. They were determined to trust in God's plan. They knew their true victory was knowing him and becoming more like him. I don't want to underestimate the struggle you're facing, the obstacle you face on a daily basis, but, I, but can I take a little liberty and say, we'll never have as much on the line as they did. They had their own egos, reputation as an upstart nation, but they also had the bigger picture, God's plan for the future of the world. He had brought them out of Egypt. He was establishing them as his nation. Yet it cannot be overlooked. They chose to praise before they got paid. This was not normal, it was not natural, but they learned how to do it. And I think the reason why they had to do it those many days, because I think it took all those days to get everybody on board. They had to realize there was something to praise God for no matter what, and maybe worship would open their eyes to more. They learned the joy that came from singing was better than any treasure they would get from Jericho. And that the victory that God had given them over the emotions that almost got the best of them and the spiritual peace that filled their souls was greater than any physical possession they were about to get. A verse that's very powerful, often overlooked, Nehemiah chapter 8. God says... For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be greedy, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So here's the strategy. If you cannot do it in the joy of the Lord, if you cannot go about it in the worshipful spirit, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Maybe you shouldn't say it. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't act that way. You see, worship is the key. It is the ticket to not just our joy, but our strength. If we ever want to be strong and courageous in the face of a world that has a vacuum turned on high, that's doing its best to clean us out, these things need to be addressed. And and I want to say this, men, because I am one and I can talk to y'all, I think, with a little bit of authority. We've got to destigmatize worship for our gender. And we've also got to destigmatize admitting that we are weak and that we need God's help. Can I say that again? Men, we have got to destigmatize praising God, and we've got to learn that relying on God is not a weakness. It is our only hope and way to find strength. We think we're strong, but we're not. We think we don't need to sing, but we do. Our gender struggles with addiction, unchecked, unhinged emotions, carnal temptation, distraction, far more than anybody else. And honestly, we're just weak. We continually go to battles prepared for the wrong kind of warfare and if we don't learn how to worship, we'll never win the battle for our soul. Now, ladies, y'all can sing a lot better than us so we need your voice, but y'all face your own battles. Some of them are similar to ours. Some of them are completely different. And I respect that, but every one of us cannot go into these battles unprepared any longer. And we cannot go into these battles employing the tactics that we know are not going to work. If we don't learn to prioritize worship, if we don't learn to fight the battles the right way, our enemy is not our relative we can't please. Our enemy is not our coworker we can't stand. Our enemy is not the neighbors that we disagree with. Our enemy is not the leaders that we feel like have wronged us. Our enemy, we have one. He has deceived us and caused us to look at the other side as if they're the one. But there's an enemy behind the scenes rubbing his hands together knowing that he indeed has won. You know, we are deeply at war with, our, with the wrong targets every single day, but we need to remember that we have a shared enemy and he wants us to end up just like him. In bondage. Enslaved to this world. In chains in the next. And, and speaking of those chains, the enemy is in chains right now In hell. He shouts like a roaring lion, but he has been defeated. He shows up when sin wrecks lives, breaks hearts, and death swallows another soul. The enemy still claims the blood of the fallen and broken of this world, but we claim the blood of Jesus Christ who died for us. And the enemy, he hates praise. He hates worship. He tries to stop it and he just tries to distract us from its point. Every one of you, every tomorrow when something goes wrong and God says, worship me, praise me, lean on me, turn to me, trust in me, your flesh will say, what is that going to do? What good is that going to accomplish? The enemy hates it. He gets churches and Christians arguing about it all the time. That's how I know he hates it. But the walls are not coming down if we remain silent. And the walls are not coming down if we continue to pull swords out of this flesh. The walls that divide our families, our churches, our country, these walls that represent all of our flesh, spiked up in the wrong way. Worship is the weapon of spiritual warfare that we wage every day. Worship breaks the power of sin's pressure and oppression. It confuses the enemy and confounds his forces. It's our only hope in the battles that we face because we are not targeting the person in front of us. We're not targeting the things that we see. We're targeting the things that we can't see. We're targeting those emotions that we definitely can feel. But those emotions are not overcome by using them. They're overcome by worshiping the God above us. That's exactly what happens at Jericho. Y'all know how this story goes. They walk around the wall day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six... Down in verse number 15, it says, it came to pass on the seventh day. They rose early about the dawning of the day. They marched around the city seven times in the same manner on that day. Only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you this city. Shout to the Lord because he deserves worship in this moment. When the enemy surrounds you, do not give him your attention. Give it to God. Verse 20, so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets and it happened when the people heard and sa- the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. The walls fell down flat and the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they took the city. Church, now more than ever, we need to lift our voices up. Not in anger, not in frustration, but in joy and in worship. The enemy is going to try to convince you every single day this is not how you fight, this is not how you win, this is not how you overcome. But take it from Joshua, take it from Jericho. This is the only way. And every one of us, we carry that sword on our side, that sword that we're so tempted to pull out. But God calls us to carry the trumpet. Instead, now more than ever, this year more than ever, we need to rise up and go to war against the forces that work against our world. Let's lift up our voices. Let's raise our voices. Let's raise our weapons of praise and let's slay the evil forces that work against our world, that work against us, because greater than these is the power that is in us. The blood of Jesus and the spirit of his resurrection are greater and more powerful and able to break every chain, reverse every curse, and raise every grave. I want to show you something in closing. The night before Jesus died, he was with his disciples in the upper room and he was preparing them for the future, specifically for the kind of battles they would face. He told them that he would be betrayed, arrested, falsely charged, beaten, and crucified. He didn't bat an eye, he was unwavering, and he led them in celebrating the Passover together. And during that meal, he didn't look back, but he looked forward some 12 hours. And he said this, we all read this before. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after he broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said, this is my body. This crushing that we're doing to this bread, as you chew it in your mouth, this is my body about to be broken. And he took a cup when he had blessed it and he said, drink all of it. This is my blood poured out for for many for the forgiveness of sins. This drink is my blood poured out. And they all looked around and they thought, well, no, Jesus, this this can't be. You're not going to die. We'll fight for you. Peter even drew a sword and cut a guy's ear off that night. And Jesus said, if you live by that, you'll die by it. But one of the most overlooked verses in the Bible, you know what, Jesus, you know what they did next after they did this? They sung a hymn. I know that's just real, why is that even in there? They worshiped. Jesus led these men in worship and he said to them, the enemy surrounds us. He's in the room right now. He's around us. He is going to tempt every one of us. We're going to walk out these doors and we're all going to be tempted to fight the battle the way we feel like it should. And if we do that, we will not win. We're going to worship the Lord. Before going to battle for the souls of of all the world, Jesus sang a song to his father. And don't you see the message that Jesus is sending? That Joshua sent. We win by worshiping, but not only that, we worship because we have already won. Why do you fight? Because you think there's something that you need to claim. You think there's a battle that needs to be won. We worship not because we're trying to win, we worship because we have won. We worship because greater is our victory. You see, when we make a habit of worshiping, at, at, using worship as our weapon, eventually you won't have to fight for those battles anymore because you're carrying around a trophy, you carry around your victory. And then you can worship some more. We prepare, what we need to do is like Joshua's generation, prepare for the right kind of battles. God is calling all of us into the promised land, the abundant life of Christian there are many battles that we face that try to keep us from getting there. 1 Corinthians says the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, as in there are forces that try to tell us it's not possible. Death stings as sin overpowers us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not denying that there aren't forces working against you. I'm just proclaiming there is a greater force working in you and for you and through you. You can lean on that first part all you want, but that last part is available to every single believer today. It can change your marriage. It can change your workplace. It can change your life. It can change our country. I can't change everybody but me. It's where it starts. In Christ, we have our victory despite the battlefield we enter every day. In Christ, we can win the war. If our song is heard, our souls can Be healed. Not denying that there aren't some vicious battles that you face every single day. They're real. And they're hard. But I am making it very clear. God's word makes it very clear. The only way we're going to win those battles is by worshiping our way through them. Not because we even have to win. Because we already have won. Would you sing with me today? Would you worship with me today? If you have a need, the altar is open, but as the worship team comes and sings a song about worshiping God amidst our battles, I think there's victory for somebody to claim. I think there's a new strategy for somebody to employ if you'll let the Lord lead you and guide you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this teaching. Thank you for the word that reminds us that there is a battlefield. We are on it every single day. But our weapons are not of flesh and blood. Our weapons are of the Spirit of God. Our weapons is our worship. We today can raise our hallelujah because we believe there is victory that has already been given to everyone that trusts in Christ. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome our sin. That nothing we face is outside of his jurisdiction, outside his power, and outside his ability to work wonders. Lord, I know there are people here today, they have an awful situation at home, they have an awful situation at work, they have difficult times in every corner they face, there are enemies all around them, there is temptation to go the world's way, but Lord, could today be the day they choose to go into battle prepared to win the war, prepared to overcome the enemy? God, would you show them that way today and would you give all of us a song Fill our hearts with joy and victory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Y'all know this song. Let's sing it out. If you have a need, the altar is open. God is with us.